cheeky natives. It's me, Little Honolo, and I'm hanging out with my fave Dr. Slay. Hey, hey. So good to be back again. I mean, I, I, I find it interesting because, you know, when we started the Cheeky Natives, we used to have these like recordings that were quite a lot and now we're spacing them out. And so I don't get to spend as much time with you, Fave, as I would like to. So uh, we need to do more of these. Yes, um, I'm really excited about our conversation today. Today we're talking with the, uh, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the right mm-hmm. of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard yeah. of physical and mental health, a medical doctor at Disa Johannesburg with a focus on sexual and reproductive health rights, as well as a senior lecturer, a broadcaster. But also we know that they made the top 100 BBC women in the world. We also know that they had advisory board um, for um, gold keepers and also a number of like, you know, really prestigious things. Um, so today we're talking to a best-selling author, Dr. Kaleng Mufuking, uh, who is affectionately known as Dr. T, and a guide to sexual health and pleasure. Uh, welcome, welcome, Dr. T. Hey, welcome, guys. welcome. Cheeky little things, but I love you guys. And it's been a long time coming. So thank you for having me. It has indeed. So tell us about the book, right? And, and the inception of the book. Why was it important for you to, you know... A write a guide to sexual health and pleasure. The honest or the the other no. answer. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> the other answer. Give us the <laughs> answer. I want the honest, unfiltered answer. Give it to us. So the real answer is that um, I got a call from Terry at Penn Macmillan one day, and she said, "Please come in. I want to talk to you about something." And I was like, "Okay, I'll do that." Um, and it actually happened to be one of the days in September when I actually usually attended goalkeepers, which is quite ironic because now I'm on the goalkeepers advisory board. And um, on my way to the airport, I stopped by her office and she's like, I really love your work. We've been following your column in the Times and, um, you know, all of sort of like the radio, uh, the body of work I've done on radio. And we think it's time you write a book. And I was like, oh, OK. I mean, I've always known that someday I'll write a book. But I actually was not aware that there were people who were intentionally consuming my work and interested in it to a point where, um, you know, this this opportunity, you know, came to me as early as it did. Um, and I think for me, that's really just the, the element of surprise at the time is that it's quite early. I thought I would, but it, it's very early. But it was quite exciting um, to think of myself as someone who could write. Um, in this way and I found the process also quite um, affirming in, in, in other ways and but I suppose for you right um, when Terry phoned you uh, they wanted uh, something for you to write something but in in coming up with this something you wanted to come with a guide for sexual health and pleasure and the guide is interesting because what it really does I think is give people information about their body. Then it proceeds to give people information about how they can participate in, you know, sort of sexual contact. And then it goes to speak about rights. So I suppose you, there must have been some intention on your part to 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 sort of set out the book in the way that you set it out. Yes. I mean, my, you know, conversation, even with myself was, I mean, so many books have been written about sex, right? So what will make this different? Um, and I think yeah. the fact that it's been written um, by a Black woman on the African continent was already something 
different in that many of us, even as um, young girls, right, are disciplined um, and introduced in a, into the world where we don't quite fully own ourselves and our bodies. Um, and so I already thought that on its own was quite something. And then, I mean, the doctor in me started thinking about the kind of patients that I have come across in my career. And, you know, I always tell the story of the young people in the West Branch that I used to work in the clinics as a community service doctor. And at the end of that year, thinking to myself, you know, what will become of these young people? Where will they get information? Because, you know, I, it's, it felt like I was like they are working encyclopedia on mm. sex, sexuality and gender. And the reason why then I had gone into radio was to try and bridge the gap between the information that young people need and what they have available to them at their local clinics. And so this book for me felt like part of the journey of making sure that information is available to people, but we have sex within a particular context, right? And that context for me is more than just sexually transmitted infections. This idea of use a condom, be safe, test for HIV, that's fine. People know that. But people also needed to know about relationships, about communication. They needed to know about and be affirmed, right, that these bodies are actually theirs and that there's a clitoris that's sole purpose is for pleasure like we needed to tell people this information and also let them know the politics of sex the politics of their existence the politics of the body and and that in a way to get them to understand themselves holistically uh, more than just people who who shouldn't be touching themselves who should only be concerned about HIV and mm. who's sick is something that's done to them I wanted people to have a different um, uh, relationship with their bodies, with the knowledge, but also with their own um, sexual pleasure. I love that, Joyce. And I, I think that it's also interesting to hear a doctor speak about sexual health and pleasure because we know the kind of emphasis that gets placed at medical school almost on treating people's bodies as pathology. So there's something wrong with you and we fix that, but we never think of you in totality. And I'm interested about that right so about clinical medicine and then carving out the space for yourself and then moving in very particular ways that are quite unusual for people in that in that space what has that experience been like so there's two answers to that and i think one is that it's undeniable right that even as doctors with the knowledge that we have about sex and sexuality and gender we don't quite articulate it to our patients in a way that's useful for them Everything about what we do is very much around um, avoidance of disease or treatment of disease once there is, and not enough about just general health and wellness and, and what it looks like um, to be healthy and well and Black and a young woman who needs contraceptives, who's having sex in the context of STIs, but who also wants to go on a journey of self-discovery and who perhaps had their first sexual experience was rape, right? There's a whole conversation that as doctors, we're not having with our patients. And then the other side of that is, for me, it kind of always felt normal to talk about sex in a positive, pleasurable manner. Um, and I often think about the way that my mother used to have conversations with me about my body and sex. It was not in the typical demonizing way the typical way that says abstain, sex is a sin, and it's, it's something that you must fear. And so there was a bit of an audacity there, I think, that I've just always had within me. And it kind of helped with how I connected with, with patients generally, but also younger people, because I understood 
what it meant when they didn't have the information because I know what a difference it made for me having sex positive conversations, um, not thinking bad of my body. Um, and for example, things like menstruation, right? And having a very different relationship with menstruation. I knew for me how different that was and how important it was that, you know, she didn't just do the typical thing um, that a lot of adults and caregivers do, especially to girl children. What's really been interesting though is part of your sort of medical practice, your clinical work is a lot of advocacy work, right? So it's not only, uh, you're not only seeing patients, right? You're, you've, you've kind of created a space where patients are maybe perhaps even uh, can go to other doctors and be like, actually, this is what's wrong with me. And I want to know, do you think that like, uh, that's how medicine should be practiced? Like in, 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 a, in a kind of like, you often speak about this whole idea that like, you know, when you're working in a public sector, right? And in the public sector, the patient is complaining about like dirty linen um, uh, and that, yes, you are not the person who's providing the linen, right? But in, in, in that sort of dynamic, you have more power to talk to whoever the powers may be to say, hey, please clean this or please do that. And so I suppose the question is really, what do you think advocacy, right, in your own, in your, in your, your, your sort of activist type work has done for you as a, as a clinical doctor, as a medical practitioner? That's hard because often I'm like, I need to know what this activism thing is so I can switch it off and just be a doctor, right? Some days I really just wish I didn't know as much as I knew about the politics of health um, because I think some of us are just compelled into action, right, um, when you know particular things. And I think... Um, with the history of this country um, in apartheid, right? And the fact that many people don't often count um, how the health system was also used as part of the arsenal of apartheid, right? And how particular sexual and productive health needs of Black women in public hospitals in Bantustan areas um, were neglected, um, but also how particular policies were designed around population control and they, those policies were enacted onto our bodies as Black women. So even the contraceptives um, that we had available to us um, were, were, were determined. It wasn't just that there's only injectable and this particular injectable available. There's a whole political reason why that is. And um, when you think about sort of health outcomes and you want your patients to be healthy and well, and, and, and well, but there are particular underlying determinants of health that impact their ability to be healthy and well. And the law and policy are very huge determinants of health. And I don't think we're paying enough attention historically to what those policies were in terms of the democratic South Africa and how much of that policy that has become practice even outside of a policy, still affects the ability of Black women to be prosperous, to be healthy, to be well, to be autonomous and free of violence even within the health system. So the issue of you know, HIV-positive women who are coerced or forcefully sterilized is an example of a practice that finds its roots in apartheid but still finds effect and, and, and expression in, in, in the democratic South Africa. And I, I suppose to can, upon myself to try and change some of that. Um, and in family medicine, we are taught that, you know, as a, the, some of the principles of being a doctor, you must advocate for your patients. And I think that that principle for me has stayed with me even during medical school, when I was learning about medical anthropology, for example, from people like Professor Catherine Burns, when later on as a senior 
uh, in medical school, you know, meeting people like Professor Edim Klanga, who lived those principles of advocacy, right? And then sitting and thinking, okay, this makes sense why women like me, who are my age, but also those who are older, have particular bad health outcomes when it comes to their sexual reproductive health. It's because we're not paying attention to the medical history in this country. We're not paying attention to the politics of sex. We're not paying attention to the economy of health and, and how that impacts our, our ability to be autonomous, our body integrity, but also to have pleasurable experiences. I mean, I never thought there'd be a moment where sexual pleasure of gender non-conforming people of Black women would be radical. But this is what we're living with, with the fact that our clitoris, our ability to have pleasurable experiences is a radical act. Yes, I'm interested in that. Like, So I wanted to talk a little bit about the work of shame and unshackling ourselves from shame and why you feel like that is particularly important as a radical act, right? So I think that a lot of the book speaks about the unshackling of shame. So whether we think of, you know, speaking about women whose first sexual experiences have been traumatic or you think about um, people who are often, people are often at the, at the I think that people are often really, victim to other people's strange morality. So whether it's the idea that you want an abortion and you now must be subjected to somebody else's moralizing and somebody else's a healthcare provider's personal feelings, etc. But I think the book does a lot of work around shame and unshackling ourselves from shame. And I wanted to speak a little bit about that because for me that continuously stands out in your work is this idea that we can be free from shame in our desire for, for sexual pleasure. Yeah, look, I think part of the purpose of shame is to get us to be obedient to a particular system that's not even of our designing or of our, of our choice, right? And I I speak about patriarchal control of, of, of bodies, but particularly bodies that, um, you know, have fertility and potential to get pregnant. And I speak about this in one of my UN reports to the General Assembly. And I think shame suits that patriarchal control of women because you then perpetually seeking for validation from patriarchy that in fact you are a good woman because you behaved this way, because you don't actually enjoy sex too much, because you don't scream and shout during sex when you have an orgasm, because when your husband or your partner comes um, home and they're performing their masculinity, they can just have sex with you and just take it from you and you give it up, right? So the shame is used as a as, as a way to punish us to say, if you conform and do everything that patriarchy wants you to do, you will then be rewarded with particular proximity. And so people are proximal to, to patriarchy who think it protects them. Unfortunately, find out much later down the line that actually it doesn't. Just being proximal to patriarchy doesn't, um, uh, uh, is not rewarding. It may give you what you may think is a temporary protection from whatever, but it absolutely does not protect you. Um, it eats all of us up, including itself. So I also talk about the idea that uh, boys and men um, shouldn't be shamed for actually wanting intimacy and for expressing their emotions. It serves all of us when men themselves let go of shame. Of, of of being in touch with themselves and and um 
and displaying emotion. I think shame also is good for, for men to unlearn so that they can also accept being desired. You know, I have these conversations all the time to say as men, they are taught that they must be the hunter, they must be the ones to express desire. But how wonderful would it be for men to feel that they too can be desired in a relationship? And I think a lot of our disconnect, but also the extreme of it is sexual violence plays in that realm of shame and power and who owns power and who can determine who has sex with what and when and when sex starts and when it ends, right? And a lot of it is about shaming women into being dismissive um, and not actually articulating their needs because we will then um, be punished by calling particular names. And, and there's a whole societal um, system of punishment around, you know, women who enjoy sex too much, who like sex too much. That's why for me, sex work and sex workers' human rights uh, are so important because sex work is one thing that really gives that metaphorical middle finger to patriarchy, um, where women can say what they want, say how they want it, negotiate the kind of sex they want, and they can actually charge the very men for that sex, right? Because we know people who consume sex work the most are still cis heterosexual men. So, yeah, I think for me, that's why sex work and sex workers and those rights are so fundamental because they are that ultimate freedom um, that I think um, many women. Um, because of shame, look down on, but actually when you remove all of the titles, that's what we want. We all of us want the ability to have sex when we want, how we want, under the conditions that we want, and absolutely enjoy the hell out of it and scream and shout if that's what we need to do and actually walk away from that experience very affirmed and not shamed. I mean, it's interesting, you, you talk about shame and I think the first part of the book also does this, right? So there's a section in the part, first part of the book where you talk about, you know, uh, have you ever looked at your vulva, for instance, right? And if you have looked at your vulva, like, take a moment, like, here's a mirror, uh, or take your fine, fine camera of your selfie, of your phone to take a selfie. But I think that's also, like, you demystifying shame and saying, like, all vaginas look different, right? Mm. And just because it doesn't look like X or it doesn't look like Y doesn't mean that it's not normal, right? in the way that we end it. Oh, it's, it is a vagina. It's supposed to look like that. And I think that's what you do. It's like, if you are comfortable with your own body and what is happening with your own body, then perhaps you are able to invite a medical practitioner to be able to treat you with a sort of dignity. So if you are shameful of what you look like or what it looks like, you, you, you often are going to take the scraps, so to say, of like whatever the doctor may say about your, your health care. Oh, more particularly what society is saying, right? Because society mm -hmm. often saying is if it if it you're supposed to use these tightening, smelling, refreshing things. So I think like in many instances that what you're doing in terms of the, the shame is, is exactly that, right? Like you are demystifying this idea of shame. I wish you guys could see Glaling's face when um when the clock notice speaks about the smells and the the mango smelling um private parts, right? Because your private parts must smell like mangoes and strawberries and all things, all things fruity. <laughs> I, I wish you guys could have seen Kalin's face when uh, when the Tokonolo said that. But I am also interested in Kalin's work, right? Um, just because there's a thing, particularly in the book, you know, where Kalin speaks about the global gag rule and, and the idea that all all of our, you know, people always say all, all oppression is connected. Um, mm -hmm. 
all oppression is connected, right? And so all of our freedoms are connected as well. And I think that there is some interesting work that, that has been happening, but also there are some important conversations that are taking place around sexual health and reproductive rights and why, and why it's become even more important for us to care about safe abortions and the rights to abortion. And why should someone care about the global gag rule? And, and Taleng, I'd, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit around what your work has made you believe around those things. You know, I always say I didn't choose this work. I think it chose me. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I really mean it, that when you, when you do the work around the politics of health and pleasure, you, you, you read, you think you know when you are horrified, and then you actually read some more and then you get even more horrified. So I feel like I'm in this chronic cycle of horrification, if there's even a thing. Um, and sometimes I find it really exhausting because we, we take on the work of activism as individuals and we are fighting against a beast, right, that is intentional and deliberate and sustained in its attack on our rights. And these, for example, like you say, in the global gag rule around access to abortion and information and referral and the actual, you know, service itself. And you have, you know, in particular countries where you have sex toys that are still banned, you know, it, it, and it sounds like, ah, sex toys are banned, whatever. But it, it, it says something, right, about who is seen to be um, worthy and who has rights to these experiences around our bodies and pleasure. And, um, yeah, I, I, sometimes I wish I didn't know everything that I know. Um, but it's important because for me, I, I reject the very idea that we were made on this earth, especially as Black people, queer people, to, to just suffer and struggle and, 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 and constantly be fighting to be seen. And our right, for example, you know, and, and, and I take this from the, from the mandate of the right to health, you know, directly from the UN that speaks about, you know, the right to health being intrinsically linked to other rights like nutrition, safe water, um, safe housing, right? Health environment and healthy working in, in uh, environment, but also speaks about the right to information, including on sexual and reproductive health rights. So by no means I'm bringing anything new. I think I'm just doing it maybe in a different way. Um, but these are very important human rights principles that we must defend. And so I see part of my work as being a human rights defender, um, who happens to be a doctor, I think even if I was doing accounting, I probably would be, you know, still be as, uh, uh, what's the right word? Because I think, um, I don't think radical is the right word. I'd still be an activist of sorts. Let's just put it that way. I would still be um, defending human rights wherever I would be, because I think for me, it's, it's in my veins. I understand the connectivity of life um, and the connectivity of, my health and well-being, my ability to have pleasurable experiences to why, for example, there should be lighting in the streets. You know, mm. I see the connections. I see the connection, for example, with my ability to be a present, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, mother who's just given birth recently and why the workplace policy should ensure that I can um, lactate and I can express my milk in a private space. You know, I see the connections between neonatal outcomes and, um, and the ability of, 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 of mothers to stay home for a longer period with their children, which is why, by the way, um, you know, we're still thinking about a, a global campaign 
to advocate for a fourth trimester. So we know that the nine months of pregnancy is divided into three trimesters. And now the idea is that actually we should have social support for women and health support to a fourth trimester, which would extend three months after giving birth. Mm -hmm. And that can become also part of the, the, not only the social support, but also health-wise, economically, how does this look like in the workplace, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because the connections are are almost so clear to see that sometimes I I don't understand why people in elected leadership don't see it, (laughs) but there's a story for another day. But I I think for me, I see the connections. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why it doesn't matter what other career I would have ended up in. I think I've always Mm -hmm. been um, a human rights um, defender. So it's interesting to think about, you know, Alma was talking about, you know, um, sort of the the type of work that you've been doing. I mean, in in the book, you you have a section on rights, and you the, the section on rights speaks about like, you know, the rights that are afforded to people and should be afforded to people, and why it's important for us to defend those rights, right? Um, but it's interesting to think about like sort of connecting the work that you've done at the UN and particularly the report that you did about sexual and reproductive health rights in the time of COVID. And in that report, I think you did something quite pivotal by maybe for the first time in a UN um, type environment, that the recognition was that there are people, there are women who can have abortion, but there are also people who can have abortion who don't identify themselves as women, right? And that's quite a big thing for us to think about because it starts giving us language into like sort of uh, international language that people can use that not only women are capable of having abortions, but more important, I think that really helped like sort of the, the case that came before the US Supreme Court where uh, an amicus you had were the lead amicus curiae in the court. But in that they were talking about like even this expansion that international law now says that it's women and people who are able to have abortion. And I suppose your, your, your now recent report around violence and the right to health where you advocate for a, 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 a more gender non-conforming approach to understanding violence, right? So those are sort of like two ways in which like, I, I want to say language that hasn't existed with, in spaces like the UN are now existing in spaces like the UN. How do you feel as someone who's mm-hmm. sort of championed that, right? Champion um, these various ways in which we understand the right to health and violence, but also understanding abortion as something that is available for all people. To be honest with you, it's only when you say it the way that you say it, and I'm like, okay, maybe that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then the question immediately as I'm listening to you is why has this not been a thing all along? <laughs> like there's a, like this frustration. And and I think I maybe it's a lesson for me to like not be so always frustrated about what isn't. Um, and just take some time to be like, okay, it's not, but we're trying to do something about it. Um, and it's not without resistance. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with that. Uh, you know, regardless of what system you are operating within, and, and I think the UN is a beast on its own. You know, you have member states, right, mm-hmm. um, who take particular resolutions and recognize particular um, independent experts and give you the mandate, right? Yeah. And so you doing this work, um, drawing from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all the other important instruments. And it, it's, so it's not without resistance. Let me yeah. just put it that way. And often when you, you know, if people are interested, you can watch the interactive dialogues um, that 
you know, get held when the experts present their reports to member states. And that kind of interaction and what it looks like and, and often the kind of questions you get asked back, right, the direct pushback to this idea um, that we can exist outside of a, of a binary world, right? Mm. And that's why even in the approach to violence, I was very intentional to speak about violence outside the binary because there's a level of freedom that lies on the other side that mm. I'm proposing that if we all take this particular route um, that we can get to, because I think ultimately it's about freedom. Um, and as you can imagine, there are a lot of people who in the world who don't want us to be free. And so that's the battle. Um, and, and, and it's across the board, right? But yeah, I mean, I think hearing you speak about it like that, it, 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 yeah, I want to take a moment to be like, okay, maybe we, we're doing something. And I, and, and I want to say that the work lives in itself within a particular history. There are others before us who tried and are still doing this work who have taught us how to do it, right? And for me, it's seeing the linkages happen that, you know, particular people do the work, they come before us and we take on and we move and we move things to the next level and, and we keep pushing and we keep pushing. Um, and I think it's that understanding that we are not just idle mm. that gives me hope. Um, because the, the the movement that's anti-rights, that's anti-women's rights, that's anti-SRHR, that's anti-CSE, Mm. that anti-LGBTIQ uh, uh, plus rights, right? The, all of those movements are very well-funded and they're sustained and they're very expressed. And so our response to that has to be equally determined. Unfortunately, it's not as well-funded and, and that work lies still with the individual. And I think that's where sometimes we feel like we are not getting anywhere because you then have individual response to a systemic problem. Mm. And I think that's what many of us are just burnt out and exhausted and don't feel like we're even making any dent, you know, um, because you're really just taking on a beast as an individual. Um, but yeah. I think I'm interested in that, right? It's like the burnouts, the, the fatigue, because I think that this work is a lot. Um, and sometimes it feels like you're constantly rallying against so many different opposing forces. What do you do when the work gets too much and you begin to feel tired? Because that's what I'm interested in. Uh, I think that often people think of Black women, Black people who are also uh, gender non-conforming as being like just tireless, right? We never get tired. We never get exhausted. All we do is fight. So we must take up every cause. So something happens, we must be the ones on Twitter tweeting about it, or we must write petitions, or we must, you know, be those people. Uh, but there's no space for humanity, and there's no space for softness and exhaustion and just being tired. So what do you do with that? So I think what helps me partly is that my work may look different, but it's actually connected. So whether I'm on TV, whether I'm radio, whether I'm writing, whether I'm at the UN, whether I'm seeing patients, it's the same work, just finding different expression, and I'm, and I'm expressing that work differently in that space so that kind of helps because i think for me it really felt quite enormous and insurmountable in the beginning but then i really decided to just focus on one thing i couldn't change everything in the health system i couldn't change everything in governance and leadership i couldn't do all of that so i decided that if i could do one thing well in one particular area what would it be and hence my focus has really been on 
sexual and reproductive health rights, the issues of access, but also abortion access, and also the issues of um, sexual pleasure. And that helps me because then I can plan, I can, I can say no to things that have nothing to do with either of those things. And as you can imagine, I get requests from a lot of people for a lot of things. And, you know, I, I say no a lot. And you kind of have to remember to keep saying no, because sometimes you feel like, ah, oh, maybe I'm saying no too much. And now, you know, whatever. But saying no as self-love is something that I've learned. And I, and, and, and I can only frame it that way. Because we also get guilted into saying once you've said no, if that makes sense. So I'm like, I'm saying no because I love myself. I'm saying no because I love the movement of abortion access, of sexual pleasure so much that I need to reserve everything I have for that movement. Um, when I have fun, it's always planned fun, which actually is kind of fun, even if though it's planned, because you know it's coming, you have something to look forward to. Um, and and it's and and yeah, and then something that makes me happy. You know, it's almost like when you say to couples um, that have been married or they come for sex therapy, you must plan date nights. And in the beginning, they're like, oh no, that's so boring. There's no spontaneity. But then actually, there is some spontaneity because it actually removes some of the anxiety of when will date night happen. And for me, it's when will I rest? I'm like, I will rest at this point, and between then and now this is what I'm going to do. And I mean, a lot of stolen moments in between of perhaps I'm not going away away, um, but I'm just maybe staying in town, but not at my house. Like that kind of helps a lot. Um, and just doing things that one loves to do. Uh, yeah. And listening to music during COVID was a tough time. So I kind of had to mentally transport myself to South Korea and got into Korean drama and Korean food and, and whole, had a whole cultural experience just from K-dramas. And I found that even just mentally um, helped one survive because you were not constantly away to this terrifying reality um, of, of trying to survive a pandemic while you're trying to work, while you're trying um, to pay your rent, when everything else apart, I mean, around you is falling apart. So I think those kinds of things help a lot. Um, but it's not easy because a lot of what we have available to us still cost money. So if you say, you know, and, and, and even as activists, we say that people say, oh, you must rest. I'm like, well, how will I rest if capitalism still requires particular things out of me, even though I'm an activist, even though I'm doing all of these things and I believe in all these human rights, but ultimately there's a level of participating in capitalism, right? That often doesn't allow you the mental rest and, 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 um, the luxury of just switching off as, as one would like, but yeah, that's, it's a complicated, but it's something that uh, I've tried to be more intentional about in the last few years. Hmm. I mean, I think, I, I suppose we don't think of saying no as self-care, right? Like um, it feels like there's this, there's a way in which self-care happens, right? But mm-hmm. it's quite interesting to think about actually, yeah, maybe the things you say no to are a way of you taking care of yourself and saying, mm-hmm. actually, I, I, I don't want to participate in this. And that's a way of showing love to myself and showing up for myself. Yeah. So that's quite a, a, an interesting thing to think about. And mm-hmm. just on that thought, because then when you say no, people want to push you and say, so are you booked? Are you busy? Are you speaking elsewhere? And I'm like, no, I'll be sitting on my couch. And that's also valid. That's a valid way of me showing up to the world. 
is sitting on my couch and doing nothing. And I think that's that shame we were speaking about earlier. Mm. You know, if you are not there to speak to young girls about their bodies, then who will? I'm like, well, I'm not the one that designed the system that disempowers them, right? So everything can lie on my shoulders. And if mm. I don't show up, but who shows up to me? Who shows up to the 12-year-old Talene, mm. right? Nobody. So we have to think about it absolutely as... as, as um, self-care and, 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 and a note of love to yourself. Sitting on my couch for me has been the best thing ever, <laughs> you know. I, I also think, you know, often what, what, what people will use to get to us is almost as though there's a scarcity of opportunities. So if you don't take this particular opportunity up, there will never be an opportunity again, right? And saying no is also a reinforcement of the idea that you can trust that there will always be more opportunities, there will always be more spaces, there will always be more time, there will always be more, more, more. And I think it speaks to that idea that there is there is an abundance and we don't have to always hold on to the scarcity because people benefit from us feeling that there's a scarcity and they can then exploit and take from us because of that scarcity. Isn't that capitalism? They create a scarcity of food, a scarcity of resources. Of everything. One day, Jay, there will be a scarcity of yourself. <laughs> I mean, there's already a scarcity of yourself, right? Because you, you kind of are often thinking about, oh, I need to work this so that five years, ten years... But you feel like, no, you know, yes, but I think the scarcity I'm thinking of is, is of yourself will be where you just don't even know enough of yourself because you've just not even been able to spend enough time just mm-hmm. by yourself, just being, like, just being, being without doing, just being, just sitting on your couch, being. And our self-worth then being tied to what you can bring to the world, you know? This idea that I'm still worthy of every good thing in the world, even though I'm on my couch and it's world whatever day of the girl, and I'm actually sitting on my couch. Like, can that girl also be worthy of a break, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also that whole thing. Like, where do we... Because I find even with activism, the, the very people who we want to assist and change the world for the better for, don't necessarily want that for you, way, not as the one doing that job. Mm -hmm. right so you then have to do the hard work of just saying folks like can you just think more deliberately about this that's why people don't think the work we do should be remunerated Mm -hmm. right that's why people think they can call you today and be like can you do a keynote on tuesday like it takes preparation it takes you know what i know now and what i can do in 10 minutes without preparation has taken me 15 years of work experience, not that 10 years of being in medical school, internship and comserve. I'm talking post all of that. So how is it that people just expect you to just show up? Because next thing you are in the streets, homeless, but ah, but Ole, what was her problem on along? She was sleeping when her maids were busy hustling. Those are the people who will be saying that, right? Yeah. So we, the truth of the matter is you, we have to think for ourselves first. Um, and thinking of ourselves first as Black women, especially as queer people, especially who are given this task of changing the world. Mm. It, it, even this idea of changing the world, we have to think about it because I got to a point where I, and early on, which was very helpful, that I will only participate in activities that will make life easy for me first. And it sounded selfish in the beginning. But when you think about all of the things that are stacked up against black women, 
in Africa. Of course, my work will find relevance more broadly than just me. Mm-hmm. And when that does, it gives me great joy. But it helps me not be in the savior mode. I'm not here to save Litrochonono. I'm not here to save Alma. But you know what? If my work, in me doing my work, does that job, I'm really grateful. If you find meaning in that work, I'm really grateful. But I'm not here to save anyone. And I think that that complex helps a lot um, in how I approach activism and then what is expected of me and how I show up. It would be, I mean, I'm sure you, you're sitting here and you're just like, oh no, like, I hope they don't ask this question, but like, we kind of have to ask this question. Right? Oh. So I'm scared to think oh. about the question. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we, know that. For <laughs> we know what's been happening in the US, right? Like, let, let's think about like the history of the US and we think about like during Trump's presidency, there was the global gag rule. And how that global gag rule kind of inter- implicated a lot of like sexual reproductive health rights, particularly access to abortion outside of the US. Right? But we also know what's happening now is that uh, Roe v. Wade is on the cusp of being overturned, at least from what we've seen from, from the leaked opinion. We know mm. it's not final yet, but we know at least what's happening and what the, the, the thinking is that it's about to be overturned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how worrying or not worrying is that? It's very worrying because, okay, so you have obviously countries who have national policy that guides their provision of health. And in the U.S. right now, Roe versus Wade is that, right, judgment that Mm -hmm. makes sure that abortion remains legal nationally in the U.S. So when that gets overturned, it's more than just that getting overturned. It's an actual regression in law and human rights, Mm. which has catastrophic uh, uh, um, impact and meaning for other human rights. Mm. And secondly, is that, of course, it has direct impact on states that were relying on Roe versus Wade to provide abortion in their states, which may not have a state policy on abortion, but in some instances have a state policy that's actually anti-abortion, but providers were still using that law um, to provide abortion. And without that law, they now actually have no leg to stand on. Mm. Immediately what has happened is that some states have actually instituted what they, I don't know what they call it, but basically if you are a person with a uterus, Mm. you have to have a pregnancy test before you leave the state Mm. because they think you leaving the state to then get an abortion in another state. Then recently, this very past few days, a state in the U.S. has passed a law that says abortion is banned from fertilization. Now, even medically speaking, when does fertilization actually happen? Like, can they show us so mm. that we know that very moment? Mm-hmm. And jokingly, I said, well, I think we should advocate to actually ban sperm. We should actually ban the formation of sperm because our uteruses and vaginas are quite fine mm. in ovaries without sperm. Yeah. So can we just go to the source? And the source <laughs> is banning sperm and burning formation of sperm just to show the irony right and how nonsensical um some of these um proposed laws and bills are in in reality and um so that's just the immediate impact of a leak now imagine what the impact will be when the actual judgment is out it it goes way beyond the u.s because we have a lot of um other countries who look to the u.s and whether or not this is the truth 
they call themselves a powerful nation in the world, others see them as such. Mm. And so they will use that um, presidency mm. to then have these catastrophic regressions in their own um, countries uh, nationally, which will impact abortion beyond just the US. We know also that foreign policy is often decided, right, using um, such uh, 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 you know legal legal uh, processes, and so the, the the worry is then when you had the global gag rule, which could be unilaterally enforced by a president under the presidential emergency funds, right for HIV, where anywhere in the world, if the US was giving money, especially for HIV treatment, management, diagnosis, uh, that particular clinic facility, the NGO could not give information referral services um, you know, to people who need abortion. It means that their foreign policy may very well extend that to many other aid, many other funds um, that they disperse as a country from the federal uh, uh, funds. So it's, it's, it's beyond just abortion because as we know with oppression, with marginalization, just like what Elma said, our struggles are connected, mm. you know, and I hate this comparison, but in this case, it's not even a hypothetical comparison. It's the reality mm. that after abortion rights, it will probably be gay marriage, mm. right? They're already coming after critical race theory and intersectionality. They're already burning those books. Um, they're already banning um, access of trans children, accessing trans-affirming healthcare. Mm. Um, so it, you can, in, in, by the way, East, West, and Southern Africa, they are already using the education sector, right, as a political ground where they are advancing their anti-sexual, uh, comprehensive sexual and, and, and gender education in schools. Mm. So children will not only growing up without access to knowledge of what their rights are, but they will actually grow up in societies where there's no services for any of their needs um, outside of the U.S. and definitely within the U.S. Oh, sure. It's just like, you know, you, you kind of take a moment because you yes. often speak, people are like, oh my gosh, like, no, things are getting better. And I'm like, no, no. things are not getting better. Things are actually getting worse, right? And 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 just because people are able to find joy within the system, people mm. are thinking that things are getting better, but things are not getting better. And it feels like the more visibility there is, the more backlash and like really like catastrophic backlash is happening, right? So um yeah, so it's it's quite disheartening to think about, right? Just like how whether we agree or not, like a, a country like the United States of America does have impact in the world, right? And any decision that it makes has huge impact in how other countries are going to make decisions. You think about, for instance, like how maybe we've, we, we've seen some progress coming towards abortion rights, let's say in, um, the, the, in Africa, in some states in, in, in Africa, right? But because of this, that, that progress is going to, to fall away, right? And you think about, oh, maybe we've seen some um, uh, progress in terms of like, Queer rights, that may fall away. So in many instances, it's like, yo, nah, 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 nah. Yeah. And, and that's why, unfortunately, we're now at a point where having pleasurable experiences within mm. this mess feels like such a, a thing, right? It shouldn't be. It should be so normal. Like, it should be as normal as us breathing. We shouldn't even be thinking about it. But you have all of those systems literally designed to oppress every single sphere of your life. Literally. So why, 
it makes sense then why you know Lebu in the book who was busy having orgasms in a taxi without shokamzobas is so like radical right it shouldn't be but it is like oh my gosh like you know someone having an orgasm on radio like yeah. that like we, we we run to that because we are we are thirsty we are desperate for mm. something good um and 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 it should be every day isn't it like you know and i mean i hate this quote by the pope but i keep saying it because it's so important in half and yes. so i always like <laughs> erase the last part of what he says but he often says as humans we've overcomplicated life right and that we get back to a space where we 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 actually take in and immerse ourselves in things like the pleasure of food and eating which is such an important thing right mm-hmm. but also just so full of shame mm-hmm. isn't it mm-hmm. so only certain bodies can be on twitter and instagram showing us you know two kilograms of pancakes and ice cream because if i did it oh my gosh you know mm-hmm. i would get a very different response mm-hmm. from someone mm-hmm. who's smaller bodied doing it but he also goes on to say even the pleasure of sex literally the pleasure of sex mm-hmm. Oh, and then he ruins it all and talks <laughs> about that sex is for procreation but i i, I cannot often erase that part um but i think the first part of what you are saying is so important you know and and so that's why it it's important for us to rest it is for us important to enjoy the pleasure of food the pleasure of just taking a walk um realizing that not everyone can just walk i mean that's the thing yeah. right no one can just a lot of people can just be ah, I feel like hiking and let me go hike yeah especially in our country right a lot of like, people yeah. where you just like you uh, you know and this is a a a a a weird thing to say but uh, i remember when we we were traveling i sat outside for a long time right and i and i said to you actually you were like why are you sitting outside and i'm like do you think i can do this in my country right and that is such like a, yeah. a, a a small thing but to just say like like maybe i want to enjoy his pleasures and like let me enjoy them right so i i think you're completely right about that um so, um for me darling i actually just want to know what brings you joy so it's funny because i was speaking to a friend last week and i was like you know i'm at the point now where i just don't want to speak about things that don't bring me joy because they insert themselves in my lives anyway right whether you want to or not there's the constant threat of violence there's the constant threat of harm if you inhabit a particular body in this world in this country particularly and and we're just like you know we never speak about the things that bring us joy and i'm curious for you what are the things that now bring you bring you joy particularly considering the kind of work that you do Oh and they change right depending as well on where I'm at what I'm doing and I think for me um uh, being able to afford travel is something that's really like brings me a lot of joy um and the process of trying to decide on an itinerary activities or what to do and I and I say that with full knowledge of how um uh privileged that is right um but it it drives it does really make me happy um whether it's talking about visiting Kwakwa Free State or anything like that like just the idea of i'm leaving my house traveling somewhere that really um uh makes me really happy uh food eating makes me very happy cooking the food buying the food to cook um the, everything around that experience makes me happy i love texture i love the different smells i love discovering what different food does um and i love also just watching korean drama um that that is something that i 
I discovered during the first hard lockdown um, and it has stayed with me. So I love exploring and, and just being transported to other cultures, um, you know, through, through um, Korean drama. And I also just like being on my couch. And I really mean that, like, you know, just sitting, man. And, and just like, because a lot of my time is in service of others. So I must be at this place at this time to do this thing. And da, 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 da. sometimes just sitting and not having that plan is also pleasurable to me. Just being like, ah, I'll wake up whenever and I'll see. So the fact that sometimes I don't have to set my alarm is the most pleasurable thing on earth. Like that is really, um, yeah, for me, that, that's, that's really pleasurable. Top two favorite destinations? Oh, New York and New York. <laughs> <laughs> wow, like, darling! You you don't want to use it as like, you want to use number two for something else. <laughs> no, top uh, five. It's still New York. Maybe we can talk about top six, seven going that way. <laughs> uh, what I found really interesting and enlightening about your book, right, um, is when we talk about the second chapter, the second part of the book, which is talking about like um, you know communication during sex, consent, and all of those stuff. I found what was really, really interesting is the way in which like we have to begin to think of consent, right? Uh, it's just been more than a yes or a no, right? Like I think you literally use that line in, 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 in the book where you say uh, consent is more than just a yes or a no. It also is about the manner in which something is done, the duration in which something is done. Uh, and I think that's really helpful for me, actually. It's been really helpful in my work to think about, yes, actually, like what... What does consent look like? Because we, we often think it's a yes or a no, but it's it's a little bit more than a yes or a no. Mm. Um, and I want to speak about that. Like when when you wrote the, the, the chapter, like what does what was what was the purpose of the chapter, right? Because I think that if we think about in the field that I am, for instance, like if we think about like expanding the content of consent for law, mm. there would be a lot of things that we're able to achieve, right? Uh, because it's not a simple straight out yes or no, right? Mm. So often it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So I wanted to 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 say like I really, really like <laughs> I think all the time when I speak about your book, I speak about like how that that particular chapter was really important. Mm. And remember, I wrote a book on sexual pleasure, living as a woman who's under threat of sexual harassment and rape herself, right? Mm. So for me, it took a lot and it continues to, and, and I hope it inspires others as well, to think of ourselves and our ability to have sex and sexual pleasure outside of that narrative of rape and abuse. Because also the way that um, women are spoken of in this country when it comes to sex is during those conversations and news coverage of we were raped. And I was, in a way, trying to say there's more to us than just the fact that we can be raped and that we are rape victims and that for many of us, our first sexual experience was not consensual. There is still more to us than just that. And to then start going to what then is this pleasurable space? What does this freedom look like? I then had to go to do the first thing first, which is sex is sex because there's consent. Mm. And it can only be pleasurable because the people in, involved in that sex are feeling affirmed, empowered enough to continuously have the conversation about consent while they are having that sex. Uh -huh. If I give you consent to do something on my body and I'm so fearful of then saying, stop, it's painful, let's change, I'm actually exhausted, I don't feel like doing this, that 
itself is also no longer sex. Mm. So there was something about discussing the power dynamics mm. without saying power dynamics and these people are always wrong and these people are always wrong because other bodies are having sex. It's not just men having sex. Everyone needs to have consent regardless of your gender identity, regardless of, of whether you're having sex with one or two or three or five people. I was just trying to speak about consent broadly for everyday life, but also when we come to sex, the language around it, that if we mean sex, can we just understand that sex is always consensual? Mm. If it's not consensual, it's not sex. So can we stop using things like forced sex or non-consensual sex? (laughs) Say rape. There's not sex by definition Mm. is consensual. And so I was trying to do that as well. It's non-consensual sex. sex. So then say rape, because then that's what you mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah and for the people in the back, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I mean, I think that's such an important thing to say, right? Like to I say think. that it can only actually be pleasurable if both people want it to, right? And if both people say yes to it and say yes to it to the degree and stuff. And like it continues that. to be pleasurable. Yes. Because you can say yes and then it stops and yeah. then... And, and, and that what's also really important that to, to say consent is a continuous thing. It's exactly. not... Uh, uh, I've consented in the living room and therefore the consent continues to the bedroom, is to say it continues. So I can withdraw this consent at any time when mm. I am no longer comfortable with what is happening. Mm. And also sort of being honest in that it's in a, in a, and we often laugh at this, the heat of the moment, right? <laughs> People say, oh, you're going to ruin it. You make sex so boring. But no, actually think about the different ways we communicate. We communicate via body language. We use words when you communicate. Sometimes you're familiar with a particular person, right? So the consent itself is happening within that. And that's why the power dynamic is so important to be discussed in that if I'm so fearful of saying no, because you have a gun under your pillow, that's also not consent because I'm doing it fearing abuse or physical abuse or some threat of trauma. Um, if, if I say, um, if I say no, so I'll, I'll then say yes to avoid that. But it was also important to, give people the language of how do I consent? So what's my responsibility as the person who seeks consent and as the person who consent is being sought from, how do I then actually communicate that? Because a lot of the times in how we are disciplined, we are disciplined into silence. We are disciplined into shame. So you can't just automatically, just one day, just want to hang off the chandelier because Dr. T wrote about consent. There's a whole process of learning and learning. And that's why communicating during sex is good. Because then consent doesn't have to be, can I still carry on? It's about, mm. does this feel good for you? Mm. Are you enjoying yourself? Mm. Do you, what, more, what more do you want? What less do you want? And it's about you having the ability to say, actually, that, that, that's new, but that feels damn good continue mm. right that's consent so it's it, it's false this narrative that consent ruins the mood it doesn't actually consent says to the person you are wanted here and what's happening to me is really really great and i like more of it there's nothing disempowering or boring about that it's actually quite amazing mm. and we should have more of that happening mm. um and the other shame is that women are often shamed like when we have orgasms when we want to change position when we know what we want um and how we want the sex to happen so that's why the unshackling of the shame mm. is itself tied to consent mm. tied to sexual pleasure and the ability to be pleasurable 
Mm. It's because even the shame itself makes us so silent that even when you are having great sex, you have that orgasm in silence because you don't want to be shamed to be called, ah, we're not. You've been mm. having sex with so many people. How do you know that position? <laughs> That's why shame must stop because it impacts mm. even our ability to have consensual sex and, and not have sex be something that happens to us. Mm. That I in like the, the, the last part where you say that happens to us because I, I also think this a lot is that often people who have sex at us and not with us. Mm-hmm. And I think that that goes to the consent bit, right? Like once you're communicating and you're consensual, mm-hmm. you will beginning to have sex with people and not at people. Sorry, I'm not. This just... is not something you do to other people, right? Like, so yeah. you, you don't yeah. do sex to somebody. And that's important because I think so much of the language around like, just the shaming and the ways in which men use sex as, as a weapon for respectability is around the idea that they did it to you. So you were not, you were not a participant. You didn't have the agency to say, Oh, I looked at you in the club and I was like, you know, you nice. I could take you home. Um, you did it to me. So I can now shame you because I did it to you. I, I want to talk about the chapter that I, I found so interesting, right? And it's a, it's a chapter on bereavements, but I think it also speaks a lot to how we think of older people in our society having, having sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and why it was important to include the older women in our communities as a, as a population who, has, who had sex. So that's another important one around things that we often don't see connected to sex and pleasure and who's valued, right? Who's valued in terms of um, having the right to have pleasurable experiences is this idea of widowhood, right? Um, And the fact that that process of being a widow is tied to some religious, cultural proceedings and and, um, uh, rituals and all sorts of things, right? In some countries and in some um, uh, uh, societies, people believe, you know, a a widow must be taken in by the brother's brother, right? Your husband's brother now owns you. And again, that issue of consent, autonomy, self-determination, like when do women actually ever um, in their lives, own who they are and own their lives and therefore own their bodies. And the other element that's tied to this is the fact that older women, even in medicine, you know, we are not taught about um, sexual health and desires and pleasure of older women. And I often think of women who are going through menopause and definitely postmenopausal women. And I remember thinking, you know, as a medical student, going through orthopedics that a lot of the times, you know, when we talk about the patient who fell with an outstretched arm and, and, and fractured her, uh, her wrist, it was always a spot question in an OSCE. And it was a typical postmenopausal woman with osteopenic bones and therefore she fractured her wrist and what would be the treatment. But no one actually ever asked that woman, is she well, is she healthy? What are her desires for her life? Is she having pleasurable sex? Especially because we know that age of being post-menopause comes with vaginal dryness, some discomfort. The vaginal walls are not as lubricated as they used to be because of the lack of estrogen. You may be having other um, you know, uh, uh, systems in your body affected, like your mental health, of course, then your bones. Um, and so I just found that there was really no, no discipline in medicine that was looking at 
older women as just people who are rights holders who are also deserving of, of pleasure and especially sexual pleasure. So when you add the element of um, being a widow, very conservative societies and communities, you can then see why older women are not only, even in South Africa statistically, um, experiencing rape and sexual assault at the rate that they are um, and are actually not even getting the, the support that they should be getting um, specific for them as older women. But again, you have older women who feel guilty, right, for moving on because often we are told um, that you should desire marriage and that this man has chosen you, so you must be forever grateful and, and faithful to him, even to his grave. And yet men bury their wives and two weeks later they move in with their new wife, you know? Um, so there's also that element of it. And I, and I was hoping to do a lot with that very short chapter, but that's really the, the background to it. And I think it was important to give older women permission um, to move on, but also give them um, permission to know that actually physiologically what's happening to their bodies um, is not abnormal and, and also just guide them. What Chronolo says, you know, we go, they go back to that um, title. It's a guide because you're saying this is how you must ask help from your doctor. And so that's why that chapter was important to also say to older women, what's going, what's happening to you, you can get treatment, you can get support. And this is what you should ask, you know, from your doctor. Doc, I mean, you, we can go talk hours and hours about this right uh, and about the work that you do and the impact of the work but i think before we go we it would be remiss for us to not talk about sex work because if mm. it, it would feel like leona we don't support it but we fully support <laughs> sex work as well um and i suppose it's connected to also like if we decriminalize sex work we open up such a huge avenue right like we can regulate it so people can pay taxes uh, so they can be economic participants of, 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 of the society, but also they will have affirming healthcare services because they won't be judged when they get into the, the, the consultation room and say, well, listen, this is my sexual needs because I service about 10 plus people a day. Because right now, if they do that, they would still be stigmatized and judged and often not even assisted because it's like, you, you're, you're, it's moralistic in many instances. So I want to talk about like, what your feelings are about decriminalizing sex work. So decriminalizing sex work, very simple, is very different from legalizing sex work. And I think that's something we have to put out there because people who do want to support sex workers and they are right, um, often get that mixed up. So decrim is not the same as legalization. And what many of us are advocating for is a decriminalization, which means removing in law um, the penalty that either gives someone a fine or it gives you um, a jail sentence and a criminal record for then being a sex worker. And it's important in that, you know, in the global health space, the issue of sex work is often and only discussed in the context of HIV and management of STI illnesses. And that's also a notion that's rejected because not all sex workers have HIV and not and HIV is not the only concern of, of sex workers. Safe and, and working conditions are very important to sex workers. Um, criminalization makes them targets of police violence and brutality, but also violence from community members who know they can get away with that violence, be physical um, or sexual, because sex workers will find it doubly hard to go and report a crime that has happened to them when they themselves 
by saying I'm a sex worker will be put into jail, right? Mm. Um, the other important thing, I think it speaks to the, the issue of autonomy and self-determination that ultimately we do have a right to make decisions about our bodies and what we want to do with our bodies. And we should have a, a public health system that is supportive of that. That is the same, by the way, uh, principle around abortion access. You know, people would like to be like, oh, no, 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 no. We just put every young woman on a contraception and therefore there will be no more abortions. It's not true. There will always be a need for an abortion because some abortions are spontaneous. So there will always be some people somewhere in the world who want to be sex workers because they enjoy being sex workers. You can teach women how to braid and do hair all you like. Some people don't want to be braiding and making beads. They want to do sex work. Yes. And so that's why the International Labour Organization has also been, um, uh, uh, well, this civil society has been advocating there um, to have sex work recognized as work mm-hmm. because then it gives a different discussion, an entry point where we are actually discussing this as ruminative work which means we can talk about labor protections. We can talk about safe working conditions. Therefore, the health policy that supports health workers will be less about judging and stigmatizing them and more about what does it actually take to be a sex worker and what else within the health system do you need access to? By the way, not just HIV testing, you need pap smear screenings, you may need them more, more regularly, you need access to human papillomavirus vaccines, for example, um, absolutely HIV testing and treatment for those who, you know, who, 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 who consent to testing. Mm. Um, you may particularly have um, needs around postpartum after you've given birth, mm. right? Because a lot of women want to go back to work earlier than we would advise simply because they have to keep working. They live in a society where if you are not working, you do not get to pay your rent and you don't eat. <laughs> it also is important for the children of sex workers, by the way, which have been for many years um, neglected. And you have people like Dudu Damini who runs Mothers for the Future, which literally is an, uh, a program that looks at just taking care of sex workers who are mothers because the discrimination moves from the women to their children. Mm -hmm. So even at school, children are not being enrolled in class because um, even in some cases, it's suspected that the mother is a sex worker, right? Mm -hmm. And so their child's right to education is now being impacted. And so it's a whole system approach. It's a whole policy approach. But we can't imagine what a a sex work industry would look like under criminalization. Mm -hmm. That doesn't give us the freedom to do that decriminalize first, remove the penalty in law, and therefore we can start then to talk about the intricacies of what a sex work industry could look like in South Africa. Doc, really, it's been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I thank you from the Cheeky Natives for uh, giving us the opportunity to be in conversation with you. As we understand you, you could have said no as a form of self-care. We're glad that you you didn't say no to us. So thank you really much from the Cheeky Natives. Thank you so much. It's been such an important conversation, Kaling, and we can't wait to have more conversations with you. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> I want to expose you two to the 
people. So <laughs> let's just leave well, it at that. I love you guys and and thank you. I'm, I mean, this has been a long time coming, and I'm glad we could we could do this and everything online. So yeah, absolutely fantastic. And I'm a huge fan of your work. So yeah, thank you so much. Okay, cheeky natives. Um, uh, a guide to sexual health and pleasure is still available. Um, so you can go out to bookstores. Uh, the cheeky merchant um sells um uh signed copies, so you'll get a personally signed copies if you buy from the cheeky merchant. Uh, and if you want to visit Dr. Kelling's clinic, it's based in Hurlingham in Santon. And yeah, so we we hope that you will actually go out and buy the book and buy the book for your friend and your friend's friend, uh, and support uh the cheeky merchant by buying anything. Uh, else that we have at the at the cheeky merchant. So until then, we'll see you again next time, cheeky natives. Yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody.